The bathroom door opened and the woman walked in. Her frantic eyes met Sasha's in the bathroom mirror. Narrow, green, equally frantic. There was a pause, during which Sasha felt she was being confronted. The woman knew, had known all along. Sasha handed her the wallet. She saw from the woman's stunned expression that she was wrong. I'm sorry, Sasha said quickly. It's a problem I have. The woman opened the wallet. Her physical relief at having it back coursed through Sasha in a warm rush, as if their bodies had fused. If you're okay hearing of a camel cricket update, I, yes. I have learned more about the camel crickets. So, listener, for a little bit of context, you heard, you probably heard us talk uh, with tremendous enthusiasm on my part uh, about camel cricket several weeks ago in our Zodiac episode, which, as we're recording this, we're going to release tomorrow. Uh, I know that's confusing. So, um, but you remember how I said that uh, that Bong Joon-ho's movie Parasite had poorly translated camel cricket into stink bug? Yes. Uh, so I did a little bit of research, and I've learned a couple things. And one is is that Bong Joon-ho it, it actually supervises the translation and takes some liberties and often looks for terms that have a similar cultural meaning mm-hmm. as opposed to a literal translation like mm. have a have a significant and an example of that um that you can read about is the, are the the noodles that the family uh cooks in parasite at one point the rich family's coming home and they're like can you make us ramdan noodles and there's no such thing as ramdan noodles um but it was it it was sort of an invention of Bong Joon Ho for English audience audiences to sort of designed to create the sense of comfort food like a comforting food because mm-hmm. um, what actually they cook is some kind of like Korean comforting thing but because he was aware that Americans are aware of ramen and udon noodles so he just combined those two things together oh my and God. created this dish called ramdan noodles and so I am starting to suspect that. Bong Joon-ho was perfectly aware that camel cricket is not a perfect translation, or stink bug is not a perfect translation of camel cricket, but I was reading to try to verify whether or not that cricket exists in Korea, and in fact it does, and in fact, it has negative cultural associations in Korea, and people associate it with a parasite. Yes, marvelous. A parasitic worm. In fact, it's thought to be a carrier for a common parasitic worm that causes illnesses. And I'm not even sure. Apparently, that might not even be true. It might be a little bit of a superstition. Mm-hmm. But people... So in the movie Parasite, you know, that 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 cricket is used as a kind of like premonition of bad things to come, mm-hmm. you know. And, um, and he refers to it as a stink bug. I'm imagining Bong Joon-ho sort of trying to figure out, like, what is a, what's something that Americans don't like having in their house, you know? And maybe he heard about, like, the recent infestation of Asian stink bugs in the East Coast. Mm -hmm. There's also the West Coast version of stink bugs, which are a completely different animal. So I really want to talk to Bong Joon-ho now (laughs) about this. And and almost to the point now where I kind of feel like I'm going to make some phone calls or send some emails to some public radio sorts uh, who work for shows to see if I can get like a commission to do a story about this. Yeah. Uh, largely. So I have an excuse to reach out uh, to Mr. Bong. Uh, well, you've done, you've done enough of the, uh, 
you've done enough of the legwork at this point where it's starting to like form into story. You know, like yeah. it's it's always so. I mean, the 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 moment before this moment when everything is kind of inchoate and you have no idea what the architecture is or what your stuff is, is really frustrating. And then, like, you know, you do a little more research and you get a few more hits and you get a little bit yep. more momentum. And then you're yep. like, yeah, yeah, it's starting to hang together. Like, I have a you have a working hypothesis at the moment for your story. Well, and the one thing I don't I have a working hypothesis. What I think I would need for a successful pitch is like a good um, evolutionary biologist who I could do a pre interview with, like a like a sort of a short phone interview mm -hmm. who would have something interesting say that I to say that I could then send to an editor and be like this this evolutionary biologist says this 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 because I I know that my theory about you know my hypothesis about camel crickets startling humans. I, I think I know what an evolutionary biologist would say, which is that hu humans and camel crickets haven't been interacting long enough for us to impact their evolution. Mm -hmm. So to demonstrate that, you'd have to prove that camel crickets do that to other predators and and not just humans. Um, so, but, the, but that maybe, so that's what I'm guessing they would say, but I need to find somebody um, who would say that, um, or maybe I can find an evolutionary biologist who studies, um, there are other animals that will attack predators from time to time, you know, mm -hmm. like, like the prey animals that will occasionally attack a predator. And so maybe there's a biologist out there who's, who studied that kind of behavior, you know, and, um, it, it, it may, you know, like somebody who, that, that might be the key, you know, but I, I, I think I need a biologic hook in yep. addition to the Bong Joon hook. To an artistic hook. Yeah. I think yeah. the way, the way you're setting it up, it feels like the story comes at it more from the biology and evolutionary perspective first. And then I think yeah. the Bong Joon Ho part feels like just an absolutely amazing kind of color commentary uh, side of yeah. it. Yeah, well, I mean, when it, you know, if I could establish that Americans in Virginia and Missouri and places like that have this relationship with these crickets, and then, you know, if I could get Bong Joon-ho on the phone and be like, have you noticed any, you know, behavior about camel crickets? And if he were to say to me, oh, they leap at your face, like that would be the best, <laughs> that would be the best tape ever. <laughs> that would yeah. be the, the magical tape, you know, and I could imagine how to set that up. So I, I'm kind of, I'm working on this and uh, I might, I might send some emails. I, you know, I've kind of been out of the game of doing this kind of, you know, uh, public radio feature, but I know some people at some shows who might be interested in this and, uh, I think I think I think my uh, my emails would be read in, yeah. at a few places. I I think that's a good. Uh, I'm I'm looking forward to hearing um, future updates on the camel cricket story. It's not quite Benny Salazar's business card, uh, but uh, <laughs> I've got a little bit of a good name still in that industry. Yeah, I'm sure you do. But uh, yeah, that's a good segue. Why don't we uh, Why don't we get down to it? Um, we yeah. are. Talking today, listeners, about Jennifer Egan's uh, 2010 novel, uh, Visit from the Goon Squad, uh, which is, in terms of her overall output, it kind of comes in the middle of her career. She had put out a few other novels before then, um, a 2001 novel called Look at Me, um, a kind of adventurous um kind of metaphysical novel called The Keep that came out in the middle aughts. And then, uh, but she really does appear on the scene in 2010 with A Visit from the Goon Squad, which won 
the Pulitzer Prize. It won the Penn Faulkner. It won the LA Times Book Prize. Uh, it was on so many best books of the year lists that I stopped trying to write them all down. Uh, it was it was really one of those uh, zeitgeisty books that just kind of came out and did really, really well uh, when it arrived in 2010. It makes me wonder what the hell I was up to in 2010, <laughs> because I missed all of that. Uh Totally missed all of that. I mean, I, I was in Africa for three months, mm. so that might have something to do with it. Um, but uh, I also I'm also realizing that I had had some experiences around that time with uh, an MFA program and people in that program that had kind of made me had soured me a bit mm-hmm. on the literary world. So I might have been sort of uh, avoiding reading about such things. And this point, and this book, I'm kind of surprised. Well, this book, I mean, if you were feeling that way at this time, I, I would say this book is probably, I mean, it was a, it was a big hit. It continues to be a big hit. I, I would also say that it is a really big hit within that particular circle, like yeah. that particular circle of writers and people who want to write. Um, I was still teaching high school English when this book came out and pretty much the entire English department was like, uh yeah everybody everybody's got to read this like right now yeah um yeah like really this is amazing there's a chapter that's a powerpoint presentation uh like everybody check it out this this is this is the, the this is the sign of books to come yeah and i i was i was in a sort of ignoring the literati mode uh mm-hmm. that year uh for various reasons personal and professional um yeah, but um, you know, it's also like there's there are billions of people who've never seen Star Wars. You know, uh, it, it it is it, it's a funny thing for something to be big and universal. I mean, there was some movie I watched the other day for the first time that I was like, I can't believe I've never seen this. Mm-hmm. I can't. I mean, this happened. This happens to me all the time. You know that there are there are these massive cultural hits that still like only a you know how many people read a massive best selling book. Uh, 10 percent of the of of english speakers not even one percent yeah i think 10 percent would be would be a cultural very high that's like the male strong yeah. yeah exactly yeah. that would be um market penetration like like no other i, I mean even like 10 percent of readers of yeah. people who like read more than 10 books a year would be uh, you know, yeah, like a like a category seven book hurricane. Yeah, I'm really interested about your kind of um, reaction to the subject material of this book and and everything like that. You're a musician, um, so yep. I'm I'm intrigued to hear kind of your take on all this stuff. And it's also been nice hearing you kind of experience the book once this summer and then re-experience it now. I've been telling a bunch of people. Um, like I'm really, I was like, Jesse's really might have to be the heel of these next two episodes mm. because I am definitely going to be the fanboy uh, of these. But um, we could probably also fanboy together. Yeah, uh, no, I think I don't think I'm a heel. Um, but uh, it, it, uh, well, I'll save. I mean, I'll save my thoughts till we get to to post recap. Yeah. Um, but but very happy to talk about my I, it has it has yes it is the book has made quite an impact on me yeah um so the book has a um a structure it's a two-part book um yep uh 
uh, A and B, um, which um, I'm pretty sure is a reference to sides of a cassette player or sides of a record. Um, yeah, it is must, a v- be, must be. Very, very, there's so much music in this book. And um, we're going to talk about this a lot, about the way that she does figurative language and illusion and suggestion. Um, the epigraph is a Proust epigraph, which if you're going to write a book about time, I think is Mm. probably required. Um, but, uh, chapter one, um, we meet our first narrator. Uh, this is a polyphonic novel. So we're going to have many, many narrators spread throughout, um, a woman named Sasha who is 35 years old. Uh, she is on a date, uh, with a fellow named Alex, Um, And Sasha has kind of picked up uh, kleptomania over the past kind of decade of her life. It seems to be getting worse as we uh, as we experience. It seems to have been getting worse over the last few years. She's in therapy for it, but she steals a lot of things, um, usually because they suggest something to her. They suggest some manner of being in the world. Uh, and she has just lifted a wallet from a woman in the woman's bathroom on her date. Um, and uh, the chapter kind of uh, unfurls from there. Uh, she does end up returning the wallet to the woman in the bathroom and asks her not to uh, expose her. But we learn that Sasha is the executive assistant of a famous record producer named Benny Salazar. Uh, Sasha does in fact take her date Alex home. Uh, they do have sex, um, which is a surprise to her date because it doesn't seem to be going very well at first. And, uh, he takes a bath in her bathtub, which she never uses. She's got one of those hilarious New York city apartments. It's funny when I was, when I moved to New York city in 2003, I, I looked at an apartment that had a tub in the kitchen. And yeah. so when I read this, I was like, oh, my God. And it was this tiny, um, dark, dim, awful New York City apartment. Um, you kind of get the sense that maybe Sasha is in a slightly better place than that. But it's not it's not great. She doesn't live in uh, great circumstances. What else kind of popped up plot wise for you in the first chapter that's uh, that you feel like is important? Uh, she mentions working for Benny. Um, I mean, that's the only other that I think you you got everything else. I mean, I think the other thing that's going on in the book is as she's having these experiences, we're in sort of two scenes at once. We're in this moments that they're happening, but she's also describing them to her therapist. Mm-hmm. And she and her therapist are sort of fencing a little bit verbally, but also reflecting and sort of trying to make meaning out yeah. of uh, both, you know, the stealing, the date. Um, she also steals something out of Alex's wallet, which is a scrap of paper or something with a hopeful message. Do you remember what the message was? I think it uh, says, I believe in you. Yeah. It's very um, earnest and it, it almost kind of offends Sasha. Yeah, yeah. Um, and I think that's more or less where that chapter ends, if I'm remembering correctly. Yeah, totally. Do you want to pick it up, uh, chapter two, yeah. with the gold cure? Yeah, and we're in roughly the same time period, which I believe is about the time that the book came out. We know the World Trade Center has is has come down and has been and has down. not been rebuilt. Yeah, yeah, for about 
five or six years, somewhere in there. Yeah, so it was, we're thinking 2006, 2007 or something like that, which would make sense if the novel came out in 2010, because that's yep. about when it would have been conceived and written. Benny is um, a middle-aged record producer, Sasha's boss. Um, he is struggling uh, with sexual dysfunction for which he puts gold in his gold flakes in his coffee. Um, and he is spending the day with his uh, son. I don't remember the son's name offhand. Do you? Uh, I do because it's Christopher. Oh, there you go. <laughs> uh, his son, who I think is like 12 or 13 or something like that. Mm-hmm. Um, I think they, uh, Benny is divorced, if yep. I'm remembering correctly. Um, so he's got the kid for the afternoon and uh, they get coffee, which is sort of transgressive uh, because Christopher, uh, the ex-wife, doesn't really like it when they get coffee. Benny puts some gold in it and they sort of bond because Christopher also wants to put a little bit of gold flakes in his coffee. Benny uh, says that it's for a headache. In fact, it's a cure that he's heard about for sexual dysfunction. Um, he kind of muses on not even, uh, Sasha, his assistant, who we met in the first chapter, uh, being able to, uh, lead him to experience arousal, which is new for him, uh, even though they're not lovers, uh, but, uh, he's, he's always been attracted to her and he's fond of her too, even though she doesn't reciprocate, uh, his attraction. Um, and, uh, they go, uh, Benny has the plan of going and seeing uh, this band that is maybe on his label. They've done, they've, they're these sisters who are sort of, he thinks of them as aging. They're like 25 or 26 or something like that. But uh, Benny seems to consider this kind of old for the kind of music that they are. Um, and, um, and Christopher decides to come along. And so they go to this, uh, uh, house. I can't remember exactly where it was. I want to say that it was in sort of like deep Brooklyn, like, um, Mm -hmm. like Sunset Park or something like that, or, or Flatbush or sort of like that. At some point, Sasha shows up. I can't quite remember how that happens. Uh, she has taken the, she's taken the train out there and like, and, and like somehow beat them there. And there's this moment where Benny's like, how did she do that? Like, we really get the sense, we really get the sense professionally that even though Sasha's life is not great outside of her she's, job. She's very competent. Yeah, she's very good at what she do she does. And we, we really see in this chapter, Benny, Benny has lost the thread of his career. Yeah. And so he's out there and he gets kind of like, the band starts playing and he gets sort of into it and... They he's like, oh, let's record right now. You've Pro Tools, right? Let's record. And they record some music and then they're headed home. He has this conversation with Sasha and she was like, that was terrible. And suddenly <laughs> Benny realizes, oh, yeah, it was terrible, wasn't it? Why did I think it was good? That was terrible. Um, and basically they drop off Sasha. Uh, Benny walks her to the door and kind of makes a mild pass at her. And Sasha, in a very kind way, sort of... Um, puts him off and i believe that's the end of the chapter i there's also sasha is sort of good with um uh christopher the kid too and it it is interesting because sasha in the first chapter comes across as like a total mess and -hmm. in the second chapter does come across as like very together not only like competent and professional but she's also kind of like 
supportive of Benny managing his kind of neuroses reasonably well, like interacting with the kid pretty well and manages to sort of put off his advances without pissing him off, which is something even Benny kind of is impressed by. He, he, he takes note of that. Um, and, uh, it, it is sort of interesting to see her in a different context as a much more competent together person. Yeah, and that's chapter. that's it's one of my well, that's favorite, a theme of the book. Yeah, it's one of my favorite the- things about this book is the way that we get to experience characters as narrators and then also characters as objects of other narrators. Um, that I think is really masterful. And and yeah, the the heartbreaking way that Sasha kind of puts him off, she sort of says none of that, Benny, and then and then she says we need each other. Um, it's kind of suggesting that the, and the need is not romantic in any way, but, but they do, they do need each other in some way. Um, they're yep. both, they're both pretty lost, um, at this particular moment in their lives. And, um, sure. yeah, it's a really sweet, it's a really sweet moment. It ends with this scene where she says something to him through the windshield and he doesn't get it several times and is kind of desperate to know what it is. And it's it's just a bland. She says that she'll see him tomorrow. Just the this kind of continuation yeah. of what they're doing, and it's it's one of the things I love about Egan is she she somehow manages to turn uh, through the way that she organizes scenes, the everyday into um, into things with a lot of emotional weight to them. She invent and she she also she does a thing, and actually you know like you've shared a draft novel with me, and your writing reminds me of this too, where. Every when she's she she chooses she's she pays a lot of attention to the moments she chooses to depict, but she freights you with the kind of the emotional value of every single second. Uh-huh. You know, yeah. that that like there are these constant reversals of fortunes and reversals of values and sort of emotional highs and emotional lows and hopes and hopes dash just in little seemingly unimportant interactions mm-hmm. between people like that one. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's, it's remarkable. And I think we'll talk, maybe we'll talk more about it. Maybe we'll figure it out. I would like to, um, I'm it's, uh, definitely as I was working on the main heft of, of what I sent you, um, I had just reread this book, so I'm sure her Mm. fingerprints are everywhere. So chapter three is called a wonderful title. Ask me if I care, uh, which is a phrase that comes up twice in the chapter. Uh, we have a new narrator named Rhea. And what we get in this chapter is essentially the backstory of Benny Salazar's childhood. Um, seen not from Benny's point of view, though, uh, from this other character, Rhea's point of view. And we get to see Benny. We get to see the lead guitarist of the band that uh, Benny has formed in high school called the Flaming Dildos. Um, that, that lead guitarist's name is Scotty. Um, and like a lot of high school relationships, there's kind of a one directional um, love pattern. Uh, mm. Jocelyn, um, who's another main character of, of that of that group, uh, is in love with an older man named Lou, uh, who we learn a lot about over the next few chapters. Um, Scotty is in love with Jocelyn. Alice is in love with Scotty. Benny is in love with Alice and Rhea is in love with Benny. <laughs> mm. uh, so it's this, uh, it's sort of this conga line of affection that I think anybody who lived through high school will remember, um, you know, maybe by this point fondly. Uh, mm. But the, what we get in this chapter is the working up 
towards a show that the Flaming Dildos give as openers at a club in uh, San Francisco. Um, and uh, we also meet Jocelyn's much, much older boyfriend, a man named Luke Klein, who is 43 uh, at the time of this chapter's telling. And Jocelyn and all of them are probably they're 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 leaving for college the next year so they are 17 or 18 17 or 18 something like that it is not an okay relationship that jocelyn is in with lou klein lou is a monster uh he's really a bad dude um by the by the end of this book he will have had three marriages six kids and has mistreated pretty much all of them by the end of the chapter uh Scotty has discovered that Jocelyn will not be his. And so he begins a relationship with Alice and that doesn't lead to Rhea hooking up with Benny. Uh, of course, uh, she ends up sort of losing out. Um, and we also get a little hint of the next chapter because Lou talks about a safari, a trip to Africa that he went on about six years before this particular chapter that is going to be the source of the next chapter. But Really, this chapter is here to give us a lot of emotional backstory to a lot of the characters we're going to meet and really introduce us to Lou Klein's kind of toxic power. I think I think there's two other important things mm-hmm. that happen. Um, and one is you see Benny's talent as he, he is specifically Scotty is a good guitar player. Mm-hmm. Benny plays bass. And everybody agrees that Benny is bad at it. But Lou notices that he is doing interesting things with arrangements. Like, I think, what is the instrument of the guy who joins, like, the college kid? Is it, like... It's violin. That's right. So he invites a violin to play with them. I think a little bit of a reference to Velvet Underground there. Um, And you, you see that Benny is kind of... He is thoughtful when it comes to sort of putting a band together and packaging a band Mm -hmm. (laughs) in a way um, that ends up being what he ends up making his living doing very successfully, too. So you see a little bit of a glimmer of that. And Rhea also sort of notes that about him. And he's kind of very he's he's very much a thinker at that point, you know, Um, and he and Scotty are both kind of nerds and they have an interesting friendship. The other thing that happens is, is, is Benny and Lou meet and we get the sense that Benny becomes a protege of Mm -hmm. Lou. And that's sort of what's responsible for his success. And then they also end up at Lou's loft or house in San Francisco. And there's more icky stuff happening with Jocelyn, but there's an interesting scene where, with Rhea and Lou on the balcony Mm -hmm. where Rhea, Rhea basically is kind of like not at all fooled by Lou and also not attracted to him manages to sort of like, but oddly fond of him (laughs) anyway, sort of, um, and and has this sort of interaction with him where she's like, I see what you are. You're a creepy old guy. And he's like, no, I'm not old. I'll never be old. Um, and I think that's an important moment, mm-hmm. too, uh, both in establishing that they that I think Rhea and Lou have an, a weird they're not lovers. And she sort of rebuffs him. But maybe because of that, he sorts of he sort of respects her. So they have an interesting regard for one another. And um and that 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 moment where he says, I'm never going to get old, I think is very important. Yeah. And she, her answer is you're already old. Yeah. 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 And that's, that's gonna, I mean that people's understanding of time and how it works is, is I think kind of like the core question of this novel. Yeah. I, I, I think I would agree with that. 
Um, yeah, take us into chapter four, Safari. This was where I, I kind of started to get hooked by the book. Too. Yeah. I'll just, I'll just say. Uh, up to this point, it was tough reading. Um, so Lou, who, and this makes sense, who is a, a powerful record producer and, and at this point, like, you know, in his 30s, and I think we're meant to understand, like, pretty attractive, mm-hmm. um, as well as being rich and powerful and famous, uh, has a girlfriend, uh, Mindy, um, who is along on a safari with the two kids, Rolf and Charlie, who's Charlene. Um, and I, when Charlene's what, like 15 or 16 and Rolf's like 11 or 12. Mm-hmm. Does that sound about right? Yeah. Um, and so they're on safari and a number of things are going on. There's this wonderful bit of narration between, uh, well, first of all, the kids are sort of observing Lou's adult relations mm-hmm. and, and Mindy is observing the kids, um, uh, Lou is very fond of Rolf um, in an interesting way. And Lou and Rolf have these kind of like father-son chats that are sort of Lou being terrible <laughs> about like and misogynistic and other things like that. But it's also, you can tell that Lou really values his son, you mm-hmm. know, and, and, and Rolf kind of worships his dad too. Um, Mindy is fascinating. She, she's very young. She's studying anthropology and she's come up with this notion of structural emotions that I think is absolutely brilliant. Um, and I also think it's another, I think it's, uh, I think there's a bit of an author insert going on I, there, I think. Um, and I think it's, it's one of the themes of the book as well as sort of like structural emotion. So basically she's sort of noting the emotions of the people around her and basically, you know, observing the structural conditions that make those emotions more or less inevitable, such mm-hmm. as the 40 something travel agent who doesn't <laughs> like Mindy because Mindy is 23 and hot and married to the powerful man that employs uh, her or the fact that the older sister who's a, a teenager resents her uh, Mindy for kind of replacing her mom but uh, the the kid uh, the younger kid Rolf uh, kind of idolizes her because he can't separate his feelings from his father's um, and so Mindy does that for everybody Another thing that happens in these chapters is every now and again, Egan will just like give us the next 30 years of this person's life (laughs) from time to time. I love those moments. I have a reading of one of those. And there's a bunch of stuff that happens. Uh, Mindy is attracted to a safari driver. Uh, We later learn has a brief affair with him. Uh, Lou kind of figures this out, maybe completely figures it out, maybe doesn't. Um, is angry about it, says some misogynistic things that are impressionable, eventually sort of like reclaims his sort of dominance and, and control of Mindy. Mindy is considering going back to California and being a kind of starving student again, but is sort of... Uh, in another one of these structural observations refers to structural dissatisfaction and kind of muses that she can't really go back to that life now that she's had this experience of kind of being on a luxury safari and she has the option to marry Lou 
uh, which is what she does. And we learn in the course of the chapter that it's an unhappy marriage and at 40 something, maybe it's even 43, that seems to be the magic number in this book, finally leaves him and goes back to school and, and, and follows anthropology, which I think we meant to understand would have been a maybe better thing for her to do all along, since she, I think she's actually rather brilliant with her whole structural emotional thing. You have more interactions between Rolf and Lou. Um, we also, is this the chapter that we learn what happens to Charlie and Rolf, or is that the next chapter? Uh, I believe we learn about Rolf in this chapter. Uh, it really it so, really pays off in the next one, but why don't you tell us what occurs there? We, we learn that Rolf has a very troubled uh, childhood into early adulthood and eventually um, kills himself. Uh, I, I want to say as a young man, maybe in his 20s. And we, I think we're meant to understand that it's... Lou's kind of terrible parenting is mm-hmm. at least partially responsible for that. And and Lou is heartbroken by that, too. Uh, Charlie also has a kind of rough uh, life where she kind of fa- falls in. She has a sort of Jocelyn-like experience of falling in with some creepy pe- I don't remember quite what happens with her, but she, she I think she has some experiences around addiction and like weird men before sort of coming out of it. But uh, basically, all of these people who Lou comes in contact with end up having um, damaged lives. Yeah, he's not, and, he, and as does Lou. <laughs> like right, Lou is right. also, yeah. <laughs> he's he's the most powerful one, but he's as miserable as everybody else. I think. Yeah, whenever uh, whenever I think of him, um, I he's he's just Thomas Hayden Church from Sideways. I'm like that's exactly oh, who what I imagine Lou kind of looks like. He's described as kind of this craggy blonde surfer, like kind of like a like a surfer type, slightly going to seed. He he behaves, if possibly more badly than yeah. Thomas Hayden Church's character, <laughs> and he lacks that character's kind of puppy dog kindness that mm-hmm. makes him a little bit. There's something a little bit redeeming, even though, you know, in that movie that that guy does some really bad things. He's got this kind of puppy dog kindness and loyalty to Paul Giamatti's character that is a that, that's a little bit redeeming. And Lou has very little redeeming yeah. about him. Yeah, it's one of the it's one of those things where it's actually nice to see a really a, a truly a truly uncomplicated villain. <laughs> Um, yeah. in, in a novel like this where, you know, cause a lot of the time we're taught to like, yeah, you know, you got to like complicate everybody and not everybody is truly bad. L- Lou is, Lou is pretty un- irre- irredeemably bad. Um, there's not much here. Um, he's manipulative. He is self, he is self-centered in the extreme. He's probably a narcissist. Like it's, he's, he is just a wrecking ball for the people around him. Yeah, I agree with all of that. I mean, he's total scumbag. I also think, you know, sort of related to to Mindy's um, insight into kind of structural emotions, I, I almost think perhaps that in this book, everybody who has power, with maybe one exception, wields it in a mm-hmm. way that is harmful to other people. Lou just happens to have the most power. Yep. Although... Some of the other characters might be more kind and more compassionate, mm-hmm. but it does seem to me like maybe Egan is suggesting the idea that it is the fact that he is rich and powerful might be kind of leading to him, mm-hmm. leading him to behave the way that he does. Totally. Uh, at least I think you're you're meant to wrestle with that idea as you read it. Yeah. 
one brief detour about this chapter because I just think it's a masterstroke. Um, we yeah. learn about um, we learn about Mindy's affection for the safari guide um, Albert. Is it Albert? Yeah, um, Albert. We learn about it during a scene where what is happening outside of the safari car is that one of the members of the safari has left the car and has managed to get himself attacked by a lion. And in this like amazing inversion of narrative importance, we spend more time caring about the interaction between Mindy and the safari driver than the like very outward action focused thing that's happening outside of the car. Um, it's also absolutely masterful use of visualization yeah. in space because basically most of the characters are sticking their heads out of the top of the safari car, which if you've been in Africa and been on safari, you can you basically you you can stand up and the roof has been cut off usually, or it can or it can be raised to the point where you can stick your head out. And so basically, these two characters are looking at each other across the legs of mm -hmm. all the other people. This is Mindy and the safari car driver. And then when they talk, at, at one point, there's this wonderful sentence where it, it's something like his voice seemed to travel out the window, you know, around all the other windows and into the window, you know, that Mindy was sitting in. And I don't know, having been in that experience, I, I could visualize it perfectly. That that said, I believe the moment where he confesses his attraction happens before second, the, the attack. seconds yeah. before the lion. It's not like it's not like that. That's happening exactly at that moment. It's happening yeah. a few seconds before him. But then I think, yes, the, the character who's a, like a bass player, and one of Lou's bands jumps out of the uh, safari car and is immediately mauled by a lion. Yeah. Which only, um, for the, since he survives, it only kind of like uh, helps his status in his kind of like heavy metal uh, uh, band um, and, and uh, society because now he has a badass lion attack scar on his face. Uh, chapter five, we, we kind of stay in the Lou Klein orbit. Um, it's interesting. Uh, Rereading part A again over the past few days, I was like, wow, the first half of this book really is, if it's not about Lou, like he's kind of the like center of the solar system. Yeah. But um, we get we, we visit Lou on, on his deathbed. Um, and now we, the characters that are visiting him are Jocelyn and Rhea from chapter yeah. three. Um, Jocelyn and Rhea are now 43, same age as Lou was in the previous chapter. And we're about 15 years after Rolf's suicide. Um, and uh, this in pretty much this entire chapter is Rhea and Jocelyn talking to Lou uh, on his deathbed, there's this, they, they kind of wheel him downstairs and take him outside near the pool for a little bit and kind of re yeah. recapitulate the scene where at dinner from a few chapters before where Rhea and Jocelyn are quote, lose girls kind of on either side of him. Um, and uh, yeah. we, we learn, we learn a lot about uh, Jocelyn has, uh, Jocelyn has not had a good life. Jocelyn has, really wrestled with addiction and all sorts of, uh, of terrible things. She's been clean for almost a year by this point. She's living with her mom. Uh, and she really has the sense that her life has kind of moved on without her. Uh, the rest of her friends are making movies or making computers or in a very funny line, making movies on computers, uh, that I think Neil Stevenson would be happy about. Um, 
and uh, and she really she blames Lou for it, which which he deserves. Uh, there are some really there's some scenes where we get to find we we see that Jocelyn and Rolf struck up a a friendship or an intimacy. Um, they they discover that they were born on the same same exact day. And so uh, at one point in their history together, they, they sort of stripped naked and, and stood in front of a mirror together, trying to see if they shared some sort of mark from that particular time. It's maybe suggested that something intimate happens between them, but I'm not totally sure. And I, and I think Egan wants that to be oblique. Um, but there's definitely some kind of at least emotional intimacy between the two of them. Um, and th- this chapter is just enormously sad. Uh, Jocelyn at one point imagines kind of wrestling Lou out of his death, uh, out of his hospital bed where he's dying and drowning him in the pool. And, uh, and instead of doing that, she kind of tells him what for, um, and Rhea, who is now also 43, um, has three kids is kind of in the, is sort of put in the space of being a peacekeeper and, and kind of telling Jocelyn that this is probably not the time for that. And, and Jocelyn says, I, I want to kill you to Lou. And like the, what a jerk he says too late, like doesn't take any kind of accountability, just sort of turns it into a joke. Um, and it's yeah. really, it's really, a. It's another masterful chapter, but it is a sad chapter. Yeah, I mean, Lou's only redeeming quality is uh, he's a bit pathetic. Right. <laughs> it's, he's still kind of a jerk. Um, it, you know, and even the fact, I mean, yes, like Jocelyn's telling him off, but even the fact that, you know, Jocelyn and Rhea even show up uh, to pay any kind of respects to him at this point is he's lucky to get that, I think. Um, and uh, the, it is interesting that Rhea still seems to have some slight abiding affection for him. She was not as much of a victim of his bad behavior as Jocelyn was. Lou is just sort of, he's the same as always. Um, but he is he is sad in the sense that he is the only real change has been wrought by time and that, you know, the the ravages of time are now undeniable. You know, when he was 43 and like picking up 17 year old women and still kind of like craggly handsome, he could kind of he could kind of claim that he was never going to get old. Uh, But now, obviously, that's not the case and he realizes it and that's about the only thing that's changed as far as i can tell and he's deeply sad because you know he doted on rolf and and rolf died that brings us to chapter six take us away this was my favorite chapter i loved this chapter so much um so X's and O's is told from Scotty's perspective scotty was uh benny's we we met scotty as benny's best friend uh ria's no, no, Alice's crush, um, and uh, in that in that earlier chapter where they're all kids together, Scotty is arguably down on his luck. Um, he is middle aged at this point. I want to say this is yeah, like probably late nineties, um, and 
maybe he's in his late 30s, maybe maybe early 40s or something like that. He finds out that Benny uh, is his his high school best friend is a big shot successful producer with an office on you know a very high up floor in a glass and steel building uh, for his record company and he sends him a letter very interestingly going to the building I love this he writes a letter he could stamp it and put it in any mailbox but he puts it in the mailbox in front of the building as though there's some kind of like spiritual importance to mailing the letter at the actual place that you intend the letter to go to uh, and uh, Benny to his credit writes him a, a, a polite sort of kiss-offy, but polite, friendly kind of postcard-length note back, basically being like, hey, great to hear from you, buddy. Still playing that guitar? And um, Scotty is fired up by this. Uh, Scotty is also, he is a very insightful person, but maybe not super articulate. Um, And even though he's down on his luck, I find him to be very intelligent and very thoughtful and observant. And he he gets really fired up and decides he's going to spend the day fishing. Mm-hmm. <laughs> he catches a beautiful fish, the best fish he's ever caught in the East River, wraps it up in newspaper, and then basically just goes and rocks up on Benny's office the next day with this fish. And he's like, I'm not leaving until I get to see Benny. Of course, he encounters Sasha, who I think at the time is like 23 or 24, uh, is sort of already a little bit sad very pretty according to scotty and and kind of has this kind of wry wisdom to her too Mm -hmm. uh which we we see in other chapters as well and again to his credit benny takes the meeting with scotty even though we have the sense that he's busy and there's some corporate people that he should probably meet with some label people and it's an awkward meeting it has many sort of reversals of fortune i i I think it's just absolutely brilliantly rendered conversation i i can't i won't really go into the details but basically benny is a little bit haughty and suggests that scotty must be there for a favor scotty kind of pushes back and is like no i just kind of wanted to figure out what happened like why are you rich and successful and i'm me you know he's he's got a couple of sort of blue collar jobs that he does he's divorced from alice uh, his music career has gone nowhere. He's sort of at loose ends. He describes himself as dry. Um, and um, and they have kind of an awkward conversation, but there is a moment uh, where Scotty smiles and shows his teeth, most mm-hmm. of which are missing. And something happens in that moment. And I think the thing... That Scott, it's interesting, and I think you could debate what happens, but something changes for Benny. And mm-hmm. suddenly Benny seems to go from being haughtily sort of like, yeah, what do you want? Maybe I'll do you a favor, to like sincere, sincerely wanting to do a favor for Scotty. Sincerely wanting, maybe he is ashamed, maybe he has some moment of compassion for his friend who, who is in a bad way and has physically lost a lot of teeth, who time has ravaged. So he gives him his business card and says, look, uh, you know, anytime you want to like send a band my way or you want to play slide guitar on a record just give me a call uh and they go their separate ways scotty realizes he's left the fish behind and (laughs) finds that sort of amusing oh yeah he has a kind of uh funny um sort of goodbye with uh with uh um 
uh, Sasha too, where Sasha sort of says like, take it easy, Scotty. And they seems to have a kind of regard for him. And then he goes back to the park and spends a day fishing with his kind of no good buddies and then runs into these two musicians who appear to be heroin addicts um, and gives them the business card and says, call, call this guy and tell him Scotty sent you and, and he'll, and good things will happen for you. And they say they'll do that. And that's the end of the chapter. Yeah. It's, I I love that chapter too. I, I, I love that chapter so much. Yeah. And it was the, I will just say it was the first chapter that I really enjoyed as opposed to admired mm. uh, that, that it was the first time where I'm like, oh, I'm actually having fun reading this book as opposed to, uh, I mean, there earlier by the time I was hooked by the safari chapter, I, sh- mm-hmm. I should say that. But uh, that one I found genuinely pleasurable to read. Maybe I think I really like Scotty as a character. I think that's part of it. Uh, And I find him, oddly, even though he is, in many respects, the least successful narrator character that we meet, perhaps the wisest of all of them. Well, I think he's got, I mean, you know, this, this whole concept of, of X's and O's that he has, like, like the, the thing that Scotty believes is that, that the only thing that is really keeping us stratified and kind of keeping us separate from each other are these kind of structural things. Like he, there's this point where he, he, he leaves a library and then like goes back later on because there's a fancy like gala happening there. And he talks yeah. about the only thing separating him from the gala is this kind of inconvenient arrangement of molecules into walls. And right. like, and like Scotty is somebody who wants to live in the world of ideas um, but is forced to live in the mundane world. But but yeah. he also doesn't really let him bo- let that bother him too much. Yes. And and I think yeah. that's so that's so endearing. And he, he, and, and he does live in the world of ideas. <laughs> They're just his ideas. You know, right. like, like, yeah, I mean, he's he has interesting thoughts and mm-hmm. and kind of entertains himself. Yeah, I, I, I think it, I think he's very endearing. Um, absolutely. I think. All the characters are miserable uh, to some degree and are down on their luck to some degree. And to me, he seems the most comfortable with his, with the way in which time has ravaged him. You know, he yeah. seems the person who is the most accepting. I mean, he's still puzzled by it and he wants to go see he wants to go see Benny to kind of figure things out. But at the same time. He seems to be the most comfortable with his circumstances, oddly, because he has the least enviable circumstances by traditional measures. Yeah. And he I mean, Scotty has had a rough go of it. I mean, we we learn in chapter three, um, Rhea has this observation that Scotty is the angriest one of them all. Um, mm. Scotty, Scotty's mother dies when he is pretty young. Uh, of a of a pill overdose and uh, mm. and and his reaction to that apparently is to sit outside staring at the sun for for hours and hours and hours and he gets um, pretty severe ocular damage from it and it, it comes up in this chapter he That's has a right. moment where he's like yeah I have some real bad headaches and and he basically has to kind of hole up in his apartment with his eyes closed for an afternoon we learn that he and Alice did get married and then get divorced four years after getting married, um, which is just, it's, it's another, and I I think we'll talk about this a little bit coming up, but um, the way that we learn information about characters, because this is such a jumbled 
plot in terms of time. Um, she's really set all of these little landmines in places. And then when they go off, it's, it's kind of all the yeah. more crushing. Cause we know that yeah. Scotty's in a hard way when he's 17 or 18. And then we get this chapter and it's like, Oh no, more bad news. And that, that kind of leads into my first uh, question for you. So I, you know, I'm, I'm, I, I know how I feel like sort of what my experience while I read this book is, but I'm curious, like, what does this book make you feel as you read it? What is your experience of encountering this book? Uh, you know, I wish that I had known you were going to ask me this earlier today because I was going through some old voice memos on my phone and I played one from earlier in the summer when I was first reading this and it was like this book is so painful it is so bleak it is so I mean it is it is exquisite and it's profound um I had a really hard time I've read the I read the first chapter twice I've read this section all the way through and then gone back and read reread a couple of the chapters like two or three of them mm-hmm. um and yeah so so and I started reading several months ago and then we decided we were going to do the mini Neil Stevenson thing. So I hit pause. Mm -hmm. And so I read, I think I read the first three chapters a few months ago and man, that first chapter, uh, with, uh, Sasha and I'll do, I have a reading I can do. I, I could do it later. Um, just her kleptomania and sort of struggle around the theft and that scene where she steals the wallet and then sees the woman's distress at losing her wallet and then gives it back but then she's embarrassed and worried that she's going to get caught and then she doesn't and just like that was so uncomfortable I, I just felt so in that moment mm-hmm. and I think almost for the same reason that I don't often like watching horror movies I just found it exquisitely well rendered but very very uncomfortable mm-hmm. um and it and same thing with benny just seemed so pathetic and 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 um you know powerful dysfunctional broken people uh that was it was really hard and i think that if i hadn't agreed um to read this for this podcast, I might have stopped after those chapters because I really wasn't enjoying it. Mm-hmm. I was aware that it was well done because the characters felt t- real to me in a way that was uncomfortable, you yeah. know. And and, and um, but then reading through the entire section, I I I started to become sort of interested in what was going in in we started to get you started to piece together these character arcs by you know it's the book is written almost like a series of short stories that are sort of related but as you've alluded to you get little details about different characters in the different stories even if they're not narrated by that character such that your brain kind of pieces together these sort of novelistic character arcs and i found myself increasingly kind of curious and fascinated and i would say by the time that we got to the safari chapter as i said earlier i was just like okay i want to know where all of this is going Mm -hmm. um and so at that point the book started pulling me along um and then when i went back and reread those chapters it's kind of like watching a horror movie for the second time you can enjoy it more because you kind of already know who's going to get killed or Mm -hmm. not and so so it's like then then you can kind of appreciate the craft of it so going back and reading that first chapter a second time knowing how it ends and knowing where things are going to go 
I actually, I, I didn't, it wasn't quite as painful to me. I actually didn't like Sasha very much the first time mm-hmm. I read that chapter. You know, I was just like, stop stealing things. You know, like, <laughs> like I was very uncompassionate with her, with her psychological disorder. I didn't have a lot of empathy for her. Um, and going back, I do realize that, you know, there is a moment in that chapter where she chooses to give the wallet back that's a, just a little bit redemptive, right? Mm-hmm. You know, and it's a moment where that's a little bit hopeful. And it's something I started noticing in the first half is that there are these occasional moments where a character does something out of kindness or empathy. And there's so much bad behavior in this book and there's so many broken people, but there are these just little glimmers of kindness. And I'm finding that intriguing too. Mm -hmm. Um, I guess my other observation too is just, I can think of, I have a hard time thinking of a writer who, uh, the, 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 the prose is just exquisite and there there are no wasted words and there are no wasted sentences. You yep. know, if she tells you something, it's for a reason. It relates to something. It matters. Um, she gives you a lot of the emotion that people are feeling, but there's also a lot of subtext as well. Sometimes she tells you what people are thinking. Sometimes she doesn't. Characters are aware of various subtexts and little, little things. Uh, a good example of this is... You know, Lou sort of figures out that Mindy is attracted to Albert, the safari driver, because the son, Rolf, tells him, I think Mindy was rude Mm. to Albert and describes this moment where Mindy is basically sort of like giving him the cold shoulder and kind of getting him to sort of go away and leave them alone so she can put Rolf to bed. And, you know, which is actually like she's behaving, you know, quote unquote, correctly in that moment. You know, she's attracted to this guy, but she's being loyal to her her boyfriend, Lou. Uh, But Lou is able to sort of deduce what's going on through his son's description of her behavior and gets Mm -hmm. angry anyway. And just just the description of that is so exquisite, you know, and how these little behavioral details you're you're able to kind of put so much together or just little little moments where Lou says, hey, whose idea was it to put violin in the band? Oh, that was that was Benny. Mm-hmm. And you see the entire like next 20 years of Benny's life unfolding from that moment, which is like Lou's going to take him on as a protege, give him some bands to manage. One of them's going to do pretty well. He's going to, you know, like you, you see everything that takes you from the Lou that we saw in the second chapter to that. That's the ending point. We see the beginning point, and in that moment, you see the you can kind of imagine the in between. And so, I'm just incredibly impressed yeah. with her craft and ability to do that, and the exquisiteness of the prose. And it's like I'm having a hard time thinking of another writer, like maybe Herman Melville, similarly sort of poetic. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, F. Scott Fitzgerald. Um, Steinbeck, not Hemingway, because Hemingway, she's much more internal than Hemingway. You know, she's she's sharing her character's thoughts and feelings in a way that Hemingway doesn't do as much, but similarly sparse um, and just absolutely badass. Yeah. 
Yeah, something you just said about the the way that details kind of reach forward and reach back. Um, that that's really, I think, what I I think that's the thing that I love the most about this book uh, is that those details kind of yeah, I mean, reach forward to other time, you know, decades later and stuff like that. And it's um, the whole, you know, we always talk about in me- starting things in media res, like starting, yeah. you know, starting in the middle of things. It's a great way to kick things off. It's, it's way yeah. better than doing things chronologically. Um, this book, the entire book feels in media res. Like totally. the, the book we have is just the like vestiges of all of the history on either side before it and after it. And it, it does this amazing job of kind of reaching forward and reaching back. Um, and that's the, yeah, the, I've, I've got a reading that I think kind of wraps up what you, what you were just describing. Um, that's yeah. from chapter three, the safari chapter. And what's happening right before this is Charlie Lou's daughter is basically trying to do the, uh, make Lou uncomfortable, um, because of that, um, the structural resentment that been, that Mindy notices, um, yeah. that, uh, Charlene resents uh, Mindy's presence and is kind of flirting with some native African dancers that are there on the safari. Yep. The warrior smiles at Charlie. He's 19, only five years older than she is, and has lived away from his village since he was 10. But he's sung enough. He's sung for enough American tourists to recognize that in her world, Charlie is a child. 35 years from now, in 2008, this warrior will be caught in the tribal violence between the Kikuyu and the Luo and will die in a fire. He'll have had four wives and 63 grandchildren by then, one of whom, a boy named Joe, will inherit his Lalama, the iron hunting dagger in a leather scabbard now hanging at his side. Joe will go to college at Columbia and study engineering, becoming an expert in visual robotic technology that detects the slightest hint of irregular movement, the legacy of a childhood spent scanning the grass for lions. He'll marry an American named Lulu and remain in New York, where he'll invent a scanning device that becomes the standard issue for crowd security. He and Lulu will buy a loft in Tribeca, where his grandfather's hunting dagger will be displayed inside a cube of plexiglass directly under a skylight. Like that's such an amazing, like we like transposition of time and place. Um, that character, Joe is going to marry a character that we are going to meet later on in the novel, who is a daughter of another character. That's very important later on. Um, and then if you do end up reading the candy house, the follow-up to this, uh, becomes even more important again. Um, Mm. but, um, yeah, I, I just, I'm so impressed with her gutsiness to be like, yep, that's where we're going. You know, there's this warrior and yep. then we are flinging forward 35 years into the future. It really makes it really makes the Proustian epigraph make sense. Like we we are here to talk about age and time and unintended consequences of, of all of our actions. And I, I really think that that's one of the reasons why she keeps dropping those details in. I think she does it four times in this particular chapter. It's it's yeah. And I didn't know that I I accidentally read ahead one chapter, but I try Mm -hmm. not to do that for these recaps. I try to keep myself sort of uh, ignorant 
of what's happening in 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 the the second half. Um, so I didn't know that, and it, it, it's interesting because that worked for me anyway. Not knowing that, yeah, just because of the crowd, the sort of like wristband device or whatever it was. It's it's just sort of interesting to know that like oh somehow this person has another connection to the same kind of like music biz that all these characters are kind of spun off from in a weird way and some of the same um some of the same sort of like fetishizing uh artifacts and wealth and money and stuff like that i mean the other thing that that makes me think knowing that is that i mean like Jennifer Egan's talking about kind of like punk rock, but she's she writes like a math rock, like <laughs> like there there's a, a math rocker, like there there is a mathematical structure to this novel. Mm-hmm. You know, it, it is mapped out. Oh and, yeah, and 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 I don't know I don't know how she crafted it, but I would imagine she crafted the structure first and filled in the details. That's the only way I could imagine doing it, uh, or 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 maybe half and half. But and it, it'll be interesting to see what the second half reveals. But you know that that in order to write this novel, you need roughly like fifty years of history in mm-hmm. your head of how these characters relate to each other. And then you need to make a decision about like what eight moments are you going to tell that explicate those relationships and what people need to know to understand the story of yeah. these characters too. And it is, it's like a math problem. It's like a complex math problem. It's a visual, just like I, I, I would, I, I would love to just see, I'd love to see her documentation of the mm-hmm. structure of, of this novel or how she thought about it or whether she started out with twice as many scenes and pared them down. Was it something where she sort of like, you know, carved clay until she had the sculpture underneath or is it something where she built the wire and then added the clay <laughs> to the wires? Uh, I'm guessing the latter, but I, I really don't know. Uh, it's, it's absolutely masterful. Yeah. Yeah. Cause I mean, it's so, there's so many of those things that like you can't, I mean, like so much of writing is discovering as you go, especially about your character's emotional existences, but you're right. Like you couldn't do so much of this book without having really painstakingly plotted it first. I I can imagine that her writing process is difficult. Like, like like I imagine it is hard. Uh, Apparently she writes everything long form, like uh, by hand, um, And that's, uh, you know, and, and that's also amazing. Um, so, I, yeah, I, I, I'm also very curious about the way that these novels take shape for her. Yeah, I wonder how many revisions then happen after that. By God. Form. And how much of a so vision does she have as, before she starts that process? Uh, but, um, yeah, so a question for you. Um, do you have a particular character who you felt the most affinity for? Do you do you is do you find yourself latching on to somebody as as sort of your your person? Rhea. Mm. Why? Um I I I am I believe I tend to be an overthinker and an observer. Um and that is Rhea's role in this in this uh in this one. Um uh, I'm either uh, maybe Rhea or or Alex, Sasha's kind of unfortunate and earnest date from the first chapter. 
Um, like it's not, it's, it would not be out of the realm of possibility for me to carry around a little scrap of paper that said, like, I believe in you inside my wallet. Like that is, Mm. that is definitely the level of earnestness that I approach the world with and, and sort of hope. Um, but yeah, I would say Rhea, um, I think that, uh, that, that chapter, the, the one about the, when they're kids, when they're 17 or 18, um, I find the scenes that Rhea is trying to explore her possible friendship with Alice. It's not a warm friendship. And we really get the sense that, that Alice is pretty wary of both Rhea and Jocelyn. Mm. Like it's a, it's a friendship that hasn't gone super well, it seems like. And, uh, and Rhea kind of exploring that friendship and, and kind of warming up to Alice a little bit. Like she actually defends Alice a few times to Jocelyn um, in, in ways that are, that are so accurate for like writing for like that year that like that time of one's life. Uh, Jocelyn at one point says like, Oh, her parents probably do this. And Rhea remembers that Alice has said that they're not her parents. It's her mom and her stepdad, Um, which you're like, well, no, that's still at least one parent. Um, and Rhea says that to Jocelyn. She's like, oh, no, actually, it's not her parents. It's her mom and her stepdad. Um, well, and just just because that's that's Alice's preferred nomenclature mm-hmm. is, you know, she's 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 being sort of kind and deferential to. Yeah. Alice. Um, and and I just I just love the way that Rhea watches everything. And I and that it, that is that it's it's something I'm working on. Um, I think that be, being hyper aware is not necessarily a great thing um it tends to leave you overthinking stuff and um and perhaps that maybe that's the reason that Rhea is sort of in the situation that she's in where she kind of ends up outside of of all of the coupling off that that occurs um and yeah that's 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 the kind of the character who I feel the most affinity for um other than maybe Alex Sasha's date um, but how about you? Is there somebody that you feel the most connected to? Well, and for, yeah, yeah. Uh, first of all, I don't think Rhea is a bad. I, like, yes, yeah, she's she's thoughtful, but like, I think the other characters sort of follow their passions in a rather destructive way. <laughs> you know, like, like she <laughs> yeah. she has a kind of wise um, caution to her. Uh, I I think uh, uh, I I. I, I find her to be very likable. Um, but I, you know, Scotty is the character who I just enjoy the most. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm also fond of Sasha as much as I kind of hated being in her brain in that first chapter. Um, the more I saw her from other people's eyes, the more I kind of came to like her as also sort of wise in a way. And she is trying, you know, um, like uh, she is trying she's good she's spending a lot of money on therapy and she's trying not to be a kleptomaniac and she did she did have that moment but uh i just i adore scotty um yeah i i i uh, i I enjoy his musings and you know i think that uh you know it's interesting um he, he he's he's interacting with benny and he Maybe he's jealous of Benny's success, but he doesn't really seem jealous. He just seems sort of puzzled and interested, sort of intrigued. And he's not, doesn't seem like he's trying to get something 
out of Benny. Mm-hmm. You know, it doesn't, he's not, Benny thinks, oh, he wants a favor. And it doesn't seem like he wants a favor. And he, I love that he's just like, he does the kindest thing he could think to do when visiting an old friend, which is catch a magnis- magnificent fish and bring it to him. You know, uh-huh. like, what a great gift. He's like, what are all these people doing with their offices and their galas? And, you know, like, you know what matters is like fishing and fish. <laughs> you know, like that—that's what's good in life. I'm—I'm I'm gonna hang out and fish all day, and and then I'm gonna bring my friend Benny a fish. Um, and I, I just like that about Scotty. So you—you uh, you kind of alluded to this with talking about Hemingway a little bit ago. Um, where, but my question for you, and you know, this goes back to the old cliche about icebergs and what do you show and what is hidden. Um, so my question, like, what is hidden underneath the waterline of this book? Like, what does it feel like the things that aren't narrated that give this book its emotional heft? Or do you feel like everything is kind of out in the open? Like, are there are there things that she's not telling us, but that she suggests somehow that give it a little bit more freight? Because it really is very emotionally big. Um, and I, I really feel those emotions as I read the book. Um yeah. Do you feel like there's anything that she's holding, keeping, are there cards that she's keeping close to her chest? I I think, I don't think in terms of plot, I'm not seeing that. No, I've only read half the book plus an extra chapter. Um, I, I don't, it's not like, oh, when you know that Benny had a crush on Alice. Do I have that right? Um, who did Benny have a crush on? I don't even remember. Uh, Alice. Um, Definitely Alice. Yeah. 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 When, it's not like when you know that Benny had a crush on Alice that you're sort of like heart, heartbreaking <laughs> that like he didn't end up with Alice all those years ago. You know, like I don't I don't feel like there are these sort of like subtexts about, you know, characters that you sort of realize in these moments because you're seeing most of the characters suffer mm-hmm like right ass in front of you, you know? <laughs> uh, and it's pretty obvious. Um, so I think that my answer to the question is what's the underneath the waterline of the book is sort of a similar, I think you could ask the question a similar way, which is what is the book about? Mm. And I don't know. I, I see that maybe you're going to ask me that <laughs> uh, later. So I don't know. Would you rather I answer that? I mean, I, I guess to me, what's underneath the waterline is sort of the question of what holds all these stories together mm-hmm. uh, apart from Lou, you know, apart from the way in which these characters know each other. And right now, halfway through the book, to me, the answer to that is, you know, time and especially time, the Ravager, um, you know, this book reminds me a little bit of Boyd, the the Richard Linklater film, which mm-hmm. you know, which in that it's a series of anecdotes and it uses time in a way as a substitute for plot, and it just puts you in some certain moments of time in people's lives. Any story emerges from that and you see people changing, but, but boyhood is very hopeful, right? Mm -hmm. That's like, that's like time, the mature time, the healer, you know, for the adults in that movie, they become kind of more mature people over time. Uh, The kid becomes uh, a man, an adult. Uh, grows into this kind of fully formed, sensitive adult human. And um, so it's a very hopeful version of of time. And so far, this book 
is time the ravager. <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. I keep saying that, but it's time as it as it, it it as it beats people up, as it destroys them, as it causes them to lose things that are valuable. Um, you know, even in that first chapter, one of the things that was so uncomfortable was all of Sasha's sort of observations about how old she was and how hard she has to exercise to look good at 35, you know, which mm-hmm. is not that old, you know, and she's dating a guy who's 26 and how young she looks and she lies on her dating profile about how old she actually is. And then in the next chapter, she and Benny are reflecting on how the 20 you know, the formerly like 19 and 22 year old sisters are now in their mid twenties. They don't look as good as they used to. And they no longer look like they're out of high school. And that's old in this industry. And Benny's dealing with, you know, impotence and sexual dysfunction because he's old. And of course, Lou doesn't want to get old. And uh, Mindy only pursues her dreams when she's in her forties. And so all of these people are being kind of like ravaged by time. And, what I'm really interested in is in the second half of the book, if, if there will be any sort of hopeful depiction mm. of time. Um, will there be anything redemptive for any of these characters? Will any of them gain a little bit of wisdom or will they, will they experience a little bit of compassion or will they become a little bit more comfortable? That to me is the thing that I, I that's where I see the stakes right now. Mm-hmm. And I don't know what the answer is going to be. Uh, I, you know, you, you know, so don't go away. <laughs> I won't, um, I won't. No spoilers. But, uh, no, but uh, I will say that like one of the things I noticed as I kind of went back and was thinking about it right before our conversation is some of my favorite moments in these books are the little glimmers of wisdom and compassion that people experience, mm-hmm. you know, of uh, Scotty giving the business card away to the two yeah. musicians um, or which I, I see as an act of, of just he just sees that they're in a bad way and wants to he wants to use the little bit of power he has to make somebody's life a little bit better. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's that's how I interpret that. Uh, or even Benny giving him the card. I mean, I don't, yeah. you know, mind. It could be maybe it's awkwardness, maybe it's shame. But I see it as in that moment where he sees Scotty's teeth. Suddenly he's like, yeah, what did happen to us? We were best friends, and now I'm this guy, and he's that guy. And, man, I, I just want to help my friend. I just want to mm-hmm. help my friend any way I can. I, that's how I interpret that moment. I'm not sure. Um, and there are a couple other, even, you know, Sasha taking pity on the woman and giving the wallet back, you know, which was, it was almost, you know, thank God she did that, you know. Yeah. But there, there's something a little bit redemptive in that moment, you know, that, like, all is not lost. Um, and so I don't know. I don't know what, what, I don't know what is the, uh, I, I feel like this actually in some ways for all of its complexity and craft is kind of a message book. I think Jennifer Egan is telling us something mm-hmm. and my, I, I wonder if it has something to do with kindness. You know, I almost feel like I, I wish I'd spent a little time in the order here. I think we're jumping around a little bit, but we're, we're sort of eganing it, <laughs> jumping yeah, yeah, around in totally. time. Um, and the listener can piece together the narrative later. So, you know, when we talked about Zodiac uh, a few books ago, um, you know, you asked me what I found crafty about mm-hmm. the novel, right? You know, what did I find upper? Um, and, you know, in my framing of upper middle brow, and again, upper middle brow is a concept that I think we're constantly refining and redefining and, you know, what that means for me and what it means to you and what it means for the listener can all be different things. Um, but my definition is basically accessibility plus craft. And for me, 
this novel clearly has the craft. Um, I told you that I struggled with accessibility at first. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm curious, um, do you find this to be an accessible Oh, interesting. No. This, uh, I'm gonna I'm gonna try to tie this question to my last question, the the question okay. about great great novels of one's own time. Sure. Um, I can't think of a book that I have found more accessible to me than this book, um, and it 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 really feels like this is it, this really hits everything I want a a reading experience to be. Um, like I, I love every page of this novel. Like as we tipped our hand earlier, I'm definitely the fanboy here. Um, yeah, I, I, there's nothing inaccessible about this to me at all. It's like drinking water. Um, Mm. it's, it's amazing. Like I, I find it, it's exactly the kind of work that I want to create with the same kind of emotional resonance and richness and, um, yeah, there's never a moment that I feel excluded from this book. Um, and I think that it's also very, very high craft and high accessibility to me, you know, and I, I recognize that, that, that that's going to be different for everybody. Um, and the reason why I'm going to tie this into my question down below, you know, a lot of the time we hear about the big important books of other eras. So gravity's rainbow, uh, Ulysses, um, I'm thinking of those, you know, big, tentpole important books in all capitals and stuff like that. Yeah. And and I, I've always, I really, really struggled to read gravity's rainbow. Um, for Ulysses, I had to take a class to, to kind of work my way through it. Um, and, and I didn't feel that for books like infinite jest and, and this novel, which are, I feel like similar, similarly big novels and I know that, you know, Infinite Jest is an important book for you as well. And I'm wondering, like, oh, is there a certain kind of um, sort of cultural or temporal accessibility? Like, I wonder if this book isn't as accessible for people of a different generation than us um, in a way that, like, Gravity's Rainbow is not really accessible to our generation. Um, but, yeah, am, am I answering your question at all? Yes, um, no, that's really, really interesting. And, 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 and I'll also just say, like, before ask, answering your question, um, I, I, I also find it accessible. I just had to, I had, sometimes that you, I just have to break through, right? Like, yeah. I have to break through a certain amount of resistance and immerse a little bit. So it did get that way to me, to the point where it pulls me on. But it definitely didn't at first. And it, it's also like, you know, you refer to it as like drinking water. And, you know, I was thinking earlier, uh, many years ago, hearing somebody talking about Great Gatsby, which I, I think there's a similarity to Gatsby in this novel. Like I I, I, uh, I mentioned Fitzgerald earlier. Um, and I, somebody referred to reading The Great Gatsby as, as eating whipped cream, you know? <laughs> Um, and I was thinking, I mean, sometimes I'm looking for a level of accessibility that's sort of like deep fried bacon ice cream, you know, Klondike bar chocolate dipped accessibility, right? Like, Mm -hmm. and it's not that, like it, it requires a little bit of, um, 
I, you know, I had to push through a certain amount of discomfort mm-hmm. um, and a certain like, I'm not sure if I care about these people. They seem so dysfunctional. Maybe I don't care to, to get to the point of like, no, I do care. And this is masterful. Um, in terms of the question you just asked about accessibility, I'm the same way with Gravity's Rainbow, Catch-22. Uh, I do like Slaughterhouse-Five a, a lot, which is one of those books. Mm-hmm. Um Cavalier Clay to me also feels kind of whipped creamy, you know. Yeah. Um, and and Infinite Just definitely got there for me. I think it was similar where I took me about a hundred pages to sort of immerse and sort of learn the characters. And once I did, I, I loved kind of living in that very strange world. I think I was too young when I read Infinite Jest to realize how disturbing it was. Mm-hmm. Um, so it was just kind of like, yeah, this is weird. I love it. <laughs> Bunch of weird tennis players. Weird. Uh, that said, like, I think that it, it, A Visit from the Goon Squad is sort of, it's of a time, and in a way, it's even old-fashioned for its time. Like, the way she's describing the, like, ben, like to me, Benny feels like a dinosaur, mm-hmm. you know, in the quote-unquote present, which I guess is like, to me, that kind of music industry executive, especially sort of a punky one, was sort of more a creature of the 70s or the 80s. Like, Lou feels properly placed Mm -hmm. in his time. Benny, to me, it seems like by the time you got to the 90s and 2000s, you had these sort of more kind of, like, effete intellectual, like, indie rock labels. (laughs) Or kind of, like, straight-edge, you know, punky, tattooed, but, like, sober Mm -hmm. kind of, you know. and, And he's... He, that this sort of like rock and roll excess putting gold dust in your coffee and like everybody's got a heroin problem to me feels a bit old fashioned. Um, so, but that said, it does, it does feel sort of temperable, but I actually think to me, like this novel, I, I don't know. I don't know if it'll feel that way or not, but I don't feel like the setting matters at all. Mm. Like, I feel like you could basically take, you could address similar themes. You you could tell a similar story with a bunch of like Russian minor nobility. You know, mm-hmm. like this could be a Chekhov novel. Mm-hmm. Um, it could be it could be set in uh, Pearl Harbor before world before nineteen forty one. You know, among like a bunch of military wives and you know officers and their friends it could you could take some other sort of set piece type setting mm-hmm. and tell a similar series of stories with characters it happens to be set in the music industry but i don't think there's anything about like the struggles of the characters and the unhappiness of the characters that actually requires that setting you know anywhere where there is power there is talent where the relationship between power and talent is not always one-to-one, where there are winners, there are losers, where there are pecking orders, where there are hierarchies, where there are jealousies, uh, where there is excess. Like, you could... these They could be stockbrokers, right? Mm -hmm. (laughs) You know, like... And and in a way, part of what's sort of depressing about the novel is that, like, punk rock is supposed to be kind of anti all of that. And, And they're kind of falling into that. So, I... I don't know, but my instinct is that this is a more universal novel, mm-hmm. you know, more of a Gatsby than a, a, a Gravity's Rainbow, mm. you know, more of a Sun Also Rises uh, than a Catch-22. Uh, but we'll see, I guess. Thanks. 
Um, you've got, I think we should go to, I, I'd love to hear your yeah. reading and, um, and, and talk a little, you've talked already about discomfort, but I'd love to hear the reading that you picked and say why you did it. And then I think it's probably time to jump to trivia. So this woman, Sasha stole this woman's wallet. She always refers to it as lifted, you know, because she doesn't like to use the word stole. Every now and again, she'll use the word stole. And I feel like it's incredibly crafty when Egan chooses lifted versus stole. Um, so this woman has had her wallet stolen. The woman has gone into the bathroom to look for it one more time. And she's in a panic. She has to take an international flight. She needs her wallet. She needs her ID. Sasha realizes the you know, the horror of what she's done to this person and is trying to find a way to give it back. And so she goes into the bathroom to give the wallet back to the woman. Actually, sorry, I got it wrong. She went in the bathroom to kind of like leave it in there (laughs) in a place where it would be found. So she's in the midst of doing that when the woman walks in on her. The bathroom door opened and the woman walked in. Her frantic eyes met Sasha's in the bathroom mirror. Narrow, green, equally frantic. There was a pause, during which Sasha felt she was being confronted. The woman knew, had known all along. Sasha handed her the wallet. She saw from the woman's stunned expression that she was wrong. I'm sorry, Sasha said quickly. It's a problem I have. The woman opened the wallet. Her physical relief at having it back coursed through Sasha in a warm rush, as if their bodies had fused. Everything's there, I swear, she said. I didn't even open it. It's this problem I have, but I'm getting help. I just, please don't tell. I'm hanging on by a thread. The woman glanced up, her soft brown eyes moving over Sasha's face. What did she see? Sasha wished that she could turn and peer in the mirror again, as if something about herself might at last be revealed, some lost thing, but she didn't turn. She held still and let the woman look. It struck her the woman was close to her own age, her real age. She probably had children at home. Okay, the woman said, looking down. It's between us. Mm. Uh, what was that a grunt of? Uh, just a, just appreciation. Um, just the way that she... The way that Egan puts this together and really... Um, d- does such an amazing job of, of Vince, uh, eliciting empathy and feeling for her characters. I feel so much for both the woman who is going through, because we've all felt that terrible feeling of losing something that you very badly need um, and being desperate and being like, how am I going to like fix this? Um, And then, and well, and you feel that empathy because Sasha feels that empathy, which is why she gives the wallet back. Right. And that's the thing that she's been working on with her, with her counselor cause, um, about actually feeling empathy. Um, and it's just, it's such a heartbreaking scene and, and Sasha's appeal. I'm working on it because it's true. She is, and she really is trying to fix it. It's just, it's so heartbreaking. It's so it's tender. It's, it's, um, it's high stakes, um, for Sasha, for the other woman, um, the narration of it, like you said earlier is crisp and efficient. There isn't a word out of place. I really, I feel so, I spend so much time reading this book, feeling so many big things. <laughs> um, yeah. and I just, yeah, I really, I really love that particular moment. Yeah. And, you know, and just also, this is maybe what, seven seconds, 10 seconds. And there's so many reversals, mm-hmm. you know, so she's in there, she's going to make it right, but maybe get away with it. Then she gets caught. 
Then she hands her the wallet. Then she realizes she wasn't caught, but now she is because she sort of gave it away. And and um, and then her panic, the woman's being sort of compassionate with her now. The compassion is reversed. All of these sort of like up and down values. And in the midst of that, this little meditation on aging, which again, I think that's the theme of the first half of the book anyway, which is time mm-hmm. um, and how it affects us in our, you know, our word for that is aging, you know, and she, she takes note of how time has affected this woman. And yeah, it, it's, it's, and it was, you know, this was, I hated reading this the first time. <laughs> I just, I was like, ah, I don't want to be in Sasha's world. Um, and, you know, and then having, having endured it once i'm i'm able to go back and read it again with more mm-hmm. appreciation and and also with more compassion and empathy uh for uh sasha which i think is also one of the themes of this book in mm-hmm. a kind of oblique way let's um let's jump on to trivia? our trivia question um i will just take it um and yeah. i'll i'll begin so yeah um, host, host goes first i like that for trivia. okay host, host, goes host goes first for trivia i like it um okay uh jennifer egan dated a titan of the tech world while she was in college in the 1980s was it a apple co-founder steve wozniak b the other Apple co-founder and co-Steve, Steve Jobs. C, Intel chairman, Andy Grove. D, Microsoft chairman, CEO, Bill Gates. Oh, great question. Uh, I'm going to talk it through. Okay. Um, it's hard for me to imagine Jennifer Egan being attracted to Steve Wozniak. Uh Nothing against Steve Wozniak. He's a good dude. You know, I would I would love to have have him on a backpacking trip, you know? Um, (laughs) But I just don't see it. I could see Jennifer Egan being attracted in the same, to to Steve Jobs in the same way that many of the women characters in this novel are attracted to men who they probably shouldn't be. (laughs) Um, And so I could see that, but I just don't think it's true. I don't think the time quite adds up. Um, I don't... um, Maybe it's true, but I just don't think it was. Uh, wh- who is who was C and D again? Uh, C was Intel chairman Andy Grove, and then D is Microsoft chairman and CEO Bill Gates. This is weird because I was about to say if it's Bill Gates, I'll eat my hat because I just don't <laughs> see that match. And yet, um, I think I've maybe read something about Bill Gates and Jennifer Egan. Did I read that? Or maybe I'm getting it confused. Man, I think you have me perplexed. But you know what? I'm just going to go with Andy Grove because he's the only one I really don't know anything about. Uh, Got it. Andy Grove. Andy Grove. <laughs> um, you're, you're incorrect, um, but, uh, but I, like your, I like your reasoning. Um, uh, Andy Grove I threw in there because I needed another literal titan of the tech world. I think Andy Grove, from, you know, from digging around, I... Like he was probably the most physically attractive out of all of them. He was also wildly older than all of them. Uh, okay. Andy Grove, I guess, died in 2016 at the at around 80. Um, so that would be a very Lou Klein like thing if he had dated uh, Jennifer Egan in in the 80s. Um, yep. It was Steve Jobs. Oh. 
that actually figures. And and man, it, you know, if you were going to base it on if you were going to assume that some of these characters are sort of stand-ins uh for Jennifer Egan, that totally makes sense. Mm-hmm. You know, uh powerful, arrogant guy. Um very charismatic. He was very handsome up to a certain point and then mm-hmm. he sort of he kind of let himself go in various ways um but you look at steve jobs in like 1984 and that guy was smoking and, <laughs> and sexy well and jennifer uh, jennifer egan has always been smoking hot and continues yeah. to be so uh so no, maybe I, they were a quite attractive couple in the in the 80s your quiz yes. uh it is um, not a multiple choice this time um, okay. because it's very specific. Um, and it is directly related. It's, this is one that is based on the book itself. All you need to know to get the answer is the book. Okay. Um, how precisely does Scotty learn that Benny has become a successful record producer? Uh, he reads about it in Spin. That is true. Can you? There's one more key detail that I'm looking for. Oh, if you could, okay. darn it! I thought I had it. Um, okay, he learns about he. Well, he, let me ask you this: where Where does he encounter the Spin magazine? If you, um, does he? I know that he spends a lot of time at Hudson News, not as an employee, even though he hilariously mans the cash register for half an hour because somebody else thinks that he's an employee because he spends so much time there. Yes. Um, fuck. How does he get that copy of Spin? You're 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 on the right path. I, I'm gonna guess that he's like at a, a library or a magazine store, and he he like picks it up and is reading it there, and discovers that Benny is a is a is a record executive there. Like he doesn't subscribe to Spin or purchase it or anything like that. Yeah, I, I think I think you'll get a like pity close enough dick <laughs> for this one. Uh, it's it, it, you were very very close, and you were right that it was spin. The specific detail is that he pinches the spin from Hudson News uh. and reads it, <laughs> which I just thought was a perfect little detail. Yeah, for, uh, you know, uh, again, this sort of like down and out intellectual who like hangs out at Hudson News all days, reads magazines and occasionally just goes ahead and takes one uh, when he really wants it. Yeah. Uh, yeah. But uh, yeah. Shall we talk about what's next? Uh, yeah. Uh, next up, we are going to be talking about side B of Jennifer Egan's 2010 novel, A Visit from the Goon Squad. Yes, we are. Um, thanks, everybody, for listening. As a reminder, we'd love you. Uh, we would love it, and we would love you if you were to rate this podcast and review it in whatever app you choose. Uh, we will read uh, your positive review uh, on the podcast, uh, unless you don't want us to. If you don't want us to, you can send a note to hello at uppermiddlebrow.com. Upper Middle Brow is a small point production. Chris Bag and Jesse Dukes are the talent, the A&R men, and the moguls. The music is from Ben Pajak and Jesse Dukes, design and website by Chris Bag, and you can learn more about us at uppermiddlebrow.com. See you next time, everybody. Bye, everyone. Thanks for listening.